Hey everyone, I'm Rob Lee, and this is Beloved Journal. Each week, I sit down with one of my friends as we discuss what it means to love and be loved. I'm not talking about romantic love, but the kind of love that leads us to empathy, compassion, and grace. Things our world desperately needs right now. Hey everybody, uh, this is Rob Lee for Beloved Journal. I really just want to dive right into today's podcast because I think it's so important and so pressing as we deal with the most consequential public health crisis in a century. Today we have Dr. Peter A. Singer, who is the special advisor to the Director General of the World Health Organization. Uh, This conversation on public health, on faith, on structural inequality is one that I think is one of the most important podcast episodes I've done thus far, and I encourage you to listen I encourage you to not only listen, but to support the endeavors of the World Health Organization and its uh, mission to confront the public health crises of our time and to give us a future filled with hope. So with that said, let's listen in. Dr. Peter Singer, thank you so much for coming on Beloved Journal. Thank you, Rob. It's great to be with you and your listeners. Well, you are a special advisor to the Director General of the World Health Organization, And the World Health Organization has really come into uh, very much of of an entity that we are looking at and watching right now in this global pandemic. Um, It is an internationally recognized entity. That said, uh, the current United States administration under the Trump administration um, has created considerable roadblocks for you and for your work at the organization. Um, I'm curious what you would want my listeners to think about and to know about your work and how that work transcends political polarization. Thank you, uh, Rob. I mean, I think the one thing I'd really like your listeners to take away is there's only a single purpose of all the 8,000 staff who work in the World Health Organization from the Director General on down. And that one job is to save as many lives as possible, and uh, especially in including in this pandemic. And that's the single thing that I think, Rob, I'd like people to, uh, uh, to take away. You know, since we first heard about the uh, virus on December 31st of last year, uh, my colleagues have worked um, around the world and around the clock to fight it and to save as many lives as possible in every country in the world. And that's the overarching message. And I feel very proud uh, to, be, uh, to be WHO. Well, well, I, I want to follow up because I, I think this is very important. Uh, my mom, she's a nurse. She wor- she's worked in her entire career in healthcare. She finally got her doctorate a few years back in nursing, and I think she's one of the greatest healthcare professionals our community has. She is very concerned about the lack of support um, from the United States government during a global pandemic, one of the worst health crises we've seen uh, in, in a century, at least in the United States and certainly the world, too. So, so I'm wondering, what have you seen uh, as the United States has kind of tried to pull back? I know that's not fully happened or will fully happen even with the new administration, but I'm curious what you have felt on the ground and also maybe uh, thinking conceptually about the future of the World Health Organization. Yeah, thank you so much for that question. First, let's take a panoramic history. Let's think about the last 73 years. For the last 73 years, and actually well before that, if you take the Pan-American Health Organization, um, the United States and the WHO have been 
incredible partners and saving lives right around the world. U.S. institutions are uh, fantastic if you look at the totality of that history. The NIH, the CDC, uh, the FDA, um, individual global health leaders, and you see some of them even today uh, are uh, amazing, amazing colleagues and have been deeply embedded in the response. So the U.S. Is, uh, uh, has been historically a great leader in public health, a great partner to the World Health Organization. Now, in the recent times, I think uh, um, the most important issue in the leadership of any country is what happens in the country itself. That's what citizens of the country um, care about. As a United Nations official, we don't judge individual countries. Uh, but what I would say is that the numbers, unfortunately, do speak for themselves. So, you know, any of your listeners can go to uh, a website called Our World in Data or can go to the WHO website and you will find that the cumulative mortality rate per million people in the United States is above 700 per million people at this point from COVID. That puts the U.S. in the top four or five countries in the G20 in terms of cumulative mortality rate and in the top dozen or 15 countries, let's say, um, in, in the world, or at least the countries in that, uh, in that data set. So, um, you know, unfortunately, I think the numbers speak for themselves in terms of, um, in terms of the uh, um, experience of individual Americans uh, in, in the pandemic. What I would say, turning to the future, is that um, we very much hope that that excellent relationship that's been there for almost three quarters of a century will continue. Uh, long into the future for the benefit of the people of the world, for the benefit of humanity, and also for the benefit of the citizens of the United States, because the national security of the United States is improved by um, having global uh, solutions to global challenges and by the relationship between the United States of America and the World Health Organization. I mean, parenthetically, it's kind of been astounding to me that we, the United States, who's supposed to be the leader of the free world, um, you know, and I know you're not here to judge, and, but all of us, at least here, are really frustrated that we're not supporting an organization that has so often supported us, but deeper than that is helping our, our, our kinfolk across the world. Um, and that's really frustrating for a lot of uh, Americans, and I want to make sure that that's clear on this podcast. But I, I do want to turn to the worldwide nature of the pandemic, because as you said, geographically, it's easy for us to kind of think that we're stuck in uh, the United States, and we are due to the borders being closed. We can't really travel or do anything like that. But help us get a grasp on where we are worldwide with the pandemic. Like right now, here this week, uh, where, where we are on November 10th, as we're recording this, as this goes out on the 14th of November, this next Saturday, tell me where we're at in this pandemic. Where we're at, uh, Rob, is um, 50 million confirmed cases. Uh, reported to WHO worldwide, 50 million. Very tragically, 1.25 million deaths. Health workers that have really served their communities, like your mom, like you were saying about your mom. Uh, your mom and health workers like your mom go well above the call of duty. You know, they're 2 to 3% of the global population and 14% of the confirmed cases. Wow. So that means they're taking on personal risk 
to serve their communities. And they deserve our respect and appreciation. And um, let me just say on behalf of the World Health Organization, we want to extend our condolences to the families of everyone who's died in this uh, pandemic. And we want to extend our respect and appreciation to health workers like your mom. And in fact, to all essential workers, be it the gas station attendant, the grocery store clerk, everyone who takes on uh, personal risk uh, to, serve, uh, to, the, to serve their community. And, and that's where we are. You know, to sum it up, it's almost like um, Churchill's speech in 1940. You know, we'll fight on the beaches, but we shall never surrender. That's the moment we're in at the moment. And uh, maybe just in closing, when you look forward from this moment, I want to emphasize, Rob, that there is hope. You know, um, the world defeated smallpox. Smallpox had uh, caused more deaths in the last century, 300 million deaths, than all the wars in the last century combined. How did we do that? At the height of the Cold War? We did it together. And that's how we defeated smallpox. And that's how we'll defeat uh, COVID-19 together. And that global solidarity is, Dr. Tedros has emphasized, since January in more than 115 press conferences and every time he has the chance to do so, that global solidarity is the bedrock or the foundation to a successful response. I'm curious, you know, we're, we're talking about global solidarity and many, uh, you know, my fellow citizens would be very open to that and very supportive of that. Have you noticed across the world, or is it just a United States problem where people seem to be clinging more to nationalism in this moment and more to the realities of we've just got to take, you know, isolationism kind of is, you know, reminiscent if we're going to use Churchill of, of before Churchill got to power, you know, um, if we're going to use that history example. So I'm curious, is, is, is this something you're seeing worldwide? Uh, the... Uh, I mean, very interesting. If you ask yourself what correlates with some of those mortality rates we were talking about and what some of the studies are showing, um, the studies are showing it's not only the capacities that you have, it's also how you use them. Mm. So a lot of the times this boils down to leadership. So, um, you know, the public health capacities, for example, alone don't fully explain the variation in mortality rates. The health systems alone don't fully uh, explain the variation in mortality rates. The thing that seems to explain it best is actually the trust that communities have in their governments. And I think that really gets to the core of your question. The, um, the uh, trust is such an important, uh, such an important, uh, such an important phenomenon. So, you know, Dr. Tedros talks about global solidarity. He talks about national uh, unity and individual humility. And at all three levels, that boils down to trust, um, to valorizing science, uh, to listening, to empathy. And these are the ingredients of leadership that lead to a, uh, that seem to lead to a successful response. Well, as you talk about valorizing science, I think some of my fellow Christians, even as a pastor, are hesitant to do so. But I, I'm very supportive of what you're doing and how you're doing it. Um, and I, I don't want to just pat you on the back. I do think it's important for us to call people to action and to embrace the scientific data that is given, um, that has been presented, that is clear on how we can fight this, on how we can combat this. And one of the things that I think is coming down the tube, uh, especially here in the United States, 
is this talk of a passive possible vaccine on the horizon. Um, you know, I'm sure there are people who know far more than both of us combined about that. Um, but I'm curious, when do you see us getting past the pandemic? Do you see that vaccine, uh, you know, kind of green light and we're go, or how does that work for us? Because I don't think many of us have gone through a pandemic and gotten out on the other side. Uh, so I'm curious yeah. where you leave us. I'm cautiously optimistic about the vaccine, Rob. We had some good news this week about a Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Interim early results that showed 90% efficacy on, I think, 94 endpoints in about 43,000 patients. Um, uh, they were interim results. But it's the first glimmer, and it does um, improve the odds for that vaccine platform, it was an RNA vaccine, other vaccines that use that platform, and it improves the odds for other vaccines on different platforms that are against that antigen, the spike protein. So it's uh, good news, not just for that particular vaccines, but for vaccines in general. Um, I think we'll probably have more good news, uh, maybe through the end of the year, or more news anyway, hopefully good. Um, and then we get into the hard work of a vaccine rollout, which is a huge logistical operation. First, we need to ensure safety and efficacy. We need to ensure equitable distribution. And then we need to face all the nitty gritty logistical challenges of a rollout. For example, the vaccine, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, you need two doses and it needs a minus 70 degree cold chain, which makes it uh, harder to deliver. Um, so I'm, I'm optimistic about vaccines. I think we will see good news. I think we'll see a rollout by mid-2021. Um, but there won't be enough vaccine for everybody uh, right away. And I think, um, as I say, there's, there's uh, hope. The one thing I want to emphasize, though, is uh, vaccines aren't a silver bullet. It's not an on-off switch. The pandemic's not going to be flipped off. We're going to have to continue to strengthen that foundation of solidarity, community empowerment. It's very interesting that the foundations of this actually seem to be the soft values uh, and not necessarily the hard science. That's the bedrock. Um, we're going to have to continue, and, and let's talk about this in a minute, the public health measures, the tried and true existing public health measures, um, uh, including masking, a lot of things that your listeners can do to protect themselves. Uh, and, and take the, the issue into their own hands in this way. And, uh, and then finally, we have the tools of science. Vaccines, yes, but also drugs and diagnostics. And, and to develop those and to have them equitably distributed, WHO has led the development with partners of something called the Access to COVID Tools Accelerator. The partnerships are good. The scientific effort is robust. For example, 200 vaccine candidates, 45 in human trials, 10 in late stage human trials, the first one of which just reported. And the limiting factor now is money and there's an immediate need for $4.5 billion uh, for that effort. That sounds like a lot of money, but compared to the more than $10 trillion in stimulus spending uh, among uh, countries or the $16 trillion estimated price tag of COVID for the United States, it's actually great value for money. So in summary, I'm optimistic about the vaccine. I'm optimistic about the scientific tools, um, but uh, they have to rest on um, the fundamental public health measures and all that has to rest on a bedrock of solidarity. Now, Dr. Singer, I want to follow up on something that you said you were talking about uh, the distribution of, of, of this vaccine when, or a vaccine when it comes time to distribute uh, such, a, such a medication. One of the things that I'm especially concerned about is kind of geographic favoritism. 
um, that we have seen play out countless times where, you know, for instance, in the South where I live here in the United States, we have uh, black communities that are not only disproportionately affected by COVID, but by other diseases that, that are readily uh, treated um, if they had access to care, which is another conversation about like universal health care, right? But, but I guess the, 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 the larger question is how do you anticipate, uh, you know, the WHO making recommendations about making sure that everybody gets a chance at this? Um, and the people who need it get the chance. But just very specifically, last spring, all the uh, nations of the world, 194 member states of WHO, uh, um, at any rate, came together and said that uh, these health technologies, these health products, including vaccines, were a public good. That's a good start. Um, then uh, over the past few months, WHO has been working with partners and with member states to develop a um, allocation framework, an equitable allocation framework, which, by the way, emphasizes uh, people at highest risk, for example, the elderly um, and uh, health workers uh, in the allocation framework. So that's also good. Uh, there's modeling that shows that you save uh, something like one third of the deaths uh, by distributing the vaccine to some people in all countries as opposed to all people in some countries. Mm -hmm. So the WHO has been very active, and this is also at the heart of the Access to COVID Tools Accelerator and the vaccine pillar in the COVAX facility with a group called CEPI and a group called Gavi. So we've been doing a lot practically on equitable distribution. But I want to make a more general point, Rob, because you put your finger on what is at the heart mm -hmm. of the learning related to this pandemic, and that has to do with inequities. This virus, this evil virus, this heinous virus, this vicious virus, is the great unmasker of pre-existing structural inequities in our societies. And you said it uh, yourself, racialized communities, socioeconomic disparities, um, and, other types of, uh, and other types of inequities. And um, that's not just an issue of between countries, it's also an issue of within countries, or maybe even primarily an issue of within countries. And that is the main lesson, the harsh lesson. This virus is a very harsh teacher. That's the, 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 the harsh lesson that we've learned because it's unmasked the pre-existing inequities. And so I certainly hope that going forward, uh, we learn that lesson and we recover from this pandemic and recover we will have no doubt in a way um, that redresses uh, those, uh, those inequities, um, like for example, in racialized communities and, and, other, uh, and other types of inequities. This is our opportunity, Rob, to create a fairer world. Um, this is our opportunity to create a fairer world. And, and I think uh, we really have to have your listeners uh, and all people focus in on that um, and, 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 and voice that view uh, right around the world, because that's the way that, that, uh, that we will be able together to create, a, uh, to create a fairer world. Well, and, you know, we've also seen, you know, not only, and I don't want to just harp on the United States, we've seen some of the best of people coming out to show up and, and to be present, as you said, the healthcare workers, the essential workers, people just risking something big, right, uh, for, for the importance of what's going on in their local communities. Um, I do want to touch on something that's coming up in a lot of communities, um, especially around this season, is, is, a, is a conceptual kind of idea of holidays. Uh, we 
I think a lot of us recognize, at least maybe in our heart of hearts, if that's uh, uh, to be so bold, that we know it's going to be different. But for some reason, we just don't want to let go of that normalcy that the holidays provide, which is totally fair. Um, we don't want to let go of it. But maybe this year it's time to just, you know, be different for one year in the hopes that we can return to normalcy next year or whatever normal will look like. So I'm asking you kind of, does the WHO have any recommendations for those people wanting to visit family for holidays for the Thanksgiving Christmas here in the United States as we prepare for that? Yeah, I'll start with a very practical answer, which is there's so much variation, country to country, state to state, community to community, that our recommendation would be to follow the recommendations of local health officials. Any blanket recommendation on something like family gatherings um, uh, would cause more harm than good. Having said that, um, our advice on these public health measures has been constant from the beginning since January. WHO has emphasized that the heart of control of this uh, virus is testing, identifying, isolating, and caring for cases, tracing, and quarantining contacts. That's the heart of it. And every country that succeeded to control this, and some countries have, um, uh, has done that. Um, that's accompanied, of course, by physical distancing, masking, wash your hands, stay home when you're sick, and finally, when necessary, some of these restrictive measures, so-called lockdowns. But that creates a lot of socioeconomic uh, dislocation, and this is a problem of lives and livelihoods. So let's remember those public health measures because it's a bedrock of solidarity, a layer of those public health measures, and, uh, and then the new scientific tools and the building back related to equity and primary health care and resilient health systems. But having said that, very specifically, you know, let me just speak to um, faith community uh, here. Uh, this is going to be a holiday like no other uh, for people of faith, uh, for some of your audience who may be Christians. I mean, maybe it's the opportunity to rediscover the true spirit of Christmas, which has to do with giving which has to do with generosity. And maybe that's what we can really tap into in relationship to some of those inequities and, 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 and the, the disparities um, uh, with respect to neighbors who might be you know, five blocks away. So let's think about those inequities and maybe let's use the spirit of the holidays um, to uh, begin to address them. I think that's, that's so very important. Uh, and I think we're, 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 realizing that we're figuring some stuff out, as you said, we're figuring, we're learning stuff. So I'm curious as we look ahead, you know, and I dare not, you know, uh, pay the piper before it's due um, but I'm curious as we look ahead to the, to the future issues of public health, um, of public health care, uh, of, of even, dare I say, another pandemic, and I even shudder to say that, that might be more deadly, that might cause more ca catastrophe, uh, that we have uh, yet unseen. I'm curious, what, how will we stay on top of that? How is the WHO planning to stay on top of the future issues uh, that are already laying in wait down the road? Um, you know, I, I even think of as close as flu season coming up uh, that could be incredibly com complicated at least uh, for those countries that are dealing with both COVID and the flu season. So I'm curious, you know, what are you guys doing to stay on top of those events? Yeah, I mean, future outbreaks are inevitable. The, because of the uh, way we are globalized, because of um, uh, the human-animal interface, 
Um, so the issue isn't whether we're going to have outbreaks. We've always had outbreaks. We always will. The issue is whether we can um, find them early, control them, mitigate their effects, and address them effectively. Um, and that has to do with, uh, first and foremost, strong national leadership or national leadership with the characteristics I described, valorizing science, building trust with communities, uh, humility, listening, et cetera. And national leadership is extremely important. We love to think about the international institutions, but we have to think about our own national and local and community leaders. Um, and with respect to the WHO, um, if there's one thing I've learned being there since I came in uh, about three and a half years ago with Dr. Tedros is actually how essential an organization the WHO is and indeed the whole multilateral system in health in regard to pandemics. And, uh, and this is an institution um, that the people who work there love, uh, that has served the citizens of the world, uh, especially the most vulnerable citizens, and that really deserves the support of people all around the world, including, uh, including the people of the United States. And uh, we uh, know that we have to earn that support. And I can just assure you that the World Health Organization um, will do everything we can to, uh, to um, uh, prevent, to mitigate the effects of, to work with national governments uh, to ensure that this uh, never happens again. And I can give you concrete things like strengthening health systems and primary health care. And of course, that focus on inequities is, uh, is critical. But remember, the World Health Organization is not only the secretariat, which is the director general, myself, and 7,998 other people in 150 country offices around the world. It's also the 194 member states. So it is the place that all the governments in the world come together um, that are supported by the secretariat. And uh, maybe the kind of thought I'd like to leave your listeners with again is to come back to this idea of global solidarity, do this together, we'll only get through COVID together and we'll only be able to address uh, future pandemics together. And not only pandemics, we also have epidemic of racism. We also have epidemic of climate change. Uh, and all these epidemics, if you let me use that term loosely, are working together to threaten our future. And the way that humanity can not only survive, but also thrive is to work together. And um, uh, the United Nations, the multilateral system, the World Health Organization, I think are essential partners to uh, governments around the world, certainly, and to the people and government of the United States in ensuring a safe, fair, prosperous future, healthy future for all of us. So I have one final question that I would be remiss if I didn't ask. I want you to leave your doctor hat on and also put your philosopher hat on if you might for a second. Because as we start to kind of look back, um, once this pandemic is in the past in the rear view mirror, whenever that is, not now, but when it is, uh, what will we have learned from this moment in human history and what, what hope do you have for us to learn? What do you hope we learn? Because I think, uh, you know, as we're talking, I can't get out of my head the image of Harry Truman and the United Nations and that coming to be and this idea that, that we could do this together, right? Like that's what's in my head. And I know the World Health Organization sprang from that idea of universality and, and kind of this global 
mindset of being together. So I'm curious, what do you hope we learn? What do you hope we see uh, when we're 20, 40 years from now? Because, you know, Dr. Singer, I'm sure you've heard this too. Many of us here in the United States have kind of compared this to a generational moment like 9-11 that defined a generation or at least will define a generation. Do you remember that when that happened? So I'm curious what you learned. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, it, first of all, it is a generational moment. We certainly haven't had a pandemic like this in 100 years. And we probably haven't had a global crisis like this since the Second War. And so it is a generational moment. Um, I think that uh, we've learned many, many lessons. And we've covered a lot of them in this uh, wonderful conversation. And it's been terrific to be with you and to get to know you, Rob, on this, uh, on this podcast and, and to be able to reach out to your listeners. Um, uh, for me, the main thing I've learned is, is, uh, the equities that have been, that the inequities that have been exposed, uh, the structural inequities, the pre-existing structural inequities in our society. And so, uh, I talked about Churchill, you talked about the birth of the United Nations after the, the second war, um, uh, maybe in closing, let's talk about FDR and the new deal. Oh, so coming out of the depression, uh, FDR Uh, had uh, the New Deal, and that was about fairness. It was about uh, social programs. It was about restoring prosperity. And so I actually think that that's not a bad concept. And in fact, earlier this week, Dr. Tedros um, talked about forging uh, a new type of global uh, cooperation, a new type of global collaboration for humanity. He talked about how these problems were, we mentioned, the uh, health issues, the um, uh, Black Lives Matter, the racialized issues, the, um, the uh, climate issues, they all need to be solved together. And he uh, really, I think, uh, put down a marker of hope and a call uh, for world leaders uh, to come together to solve these problems together with the citizens and the communities, which are at the heart of the, of the solution. So. I think it's about uh, coming out of this stronger, uh, uh, redressing the inequities together, um, leading, empowering communities, and working together in global solidarity, not only to overcome COVID-19, but to be energized to tackle these multiple global challenges that we, uh, that we face. Um, and I can assure you that the World Health Organization will be there uh, standing with the people and the governments of the world to solve those global challenges and, 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 and solve them. We will, we will succeed, Rob. And that's the, 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 the thought that I think I'd like to leave your, yourself and your listeners at the end of, uh, at the end of this, uh, at the end of this uh, conversation. Dr. Peter Singer is the special advisor to the director general of the world health organization. Thank you so much for coming on the love journal. Thank you. It's been wonderful to be with you. Beloved Journal is produced by Stephanie Lee and hosted by Rob Lee. Our theme music is by Mipso, the best band in the world. Connect with us on belovedjournal.com, and if you like what you heard, tell someone about it.